If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, what do you reckon is the most well-known hymn of all time? Easy one. Amazing Grace, right? It's, it has to be probably the most uh, beloved hymn of all time. Written by a man uh, named John Newton, who began his life as a, a foul man and a, a wicked slave trader, uh, came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and gave his life to Jesus, and he ended up dying as an Anglican priest uh, and an abolitionist. Uh, towards the very end of his life, uh, he said something which I think is an excellent summary of the Christian message. It's words which are worth quoting. He said, All I know is that I am a great sinner and he is a great saviour. Those two things, that's the twin truth of the gospel, right? The the two engines uh, that make the plane fly. Now, I think in in 21st century America, in this, um, for the most part, very decadent, kind of spoiled age that we live in. Um, It's a really necessary work of the church to constantly be proclaiming the truth that we really want to forget, that we are sinners. And that's why the church every year has the penitential seasons of Advent and Lent, and even in our most sort of festal liturgy, we still pray, Lord have mercy. We never forget the penitential tone. And and that's really useful to help us to forget that we, sorry, to help us from forgetting that we are great sinners. But integrally tied to that truth is the fact that he is a great saviour. And and that's the motif that that runs throughout this passage passage, uh, in Romans chapter 8 this morning, that God is a great saviour. And so that's what I want to unpack out of chapter 8, the meaning of this very simple phrase, to remind us uh, of the greatness of the God who saves us. Because you know, as well as um, forgetting that we are sinners, we actually can make the equal but opposite mistake of forgetting that we have a great Savior. If we forget that we're sinners, we can be tempted to sort of take God's grace for granted. But if we forget that God is a great Savior, we could shy away from Him. And actually, both of those things ultimately can lead us away from God and to destruction. So it's against that second error that Paul is writing Romans chapter 8. I sort of think of uh, chapter 8 as sort of the declaration of independence uh, in the Bible, of independence uh, from the tyranny of of Satan. Satan, you recall, the name means accuser. Now, I I, I I preached a couple weeks ago, the Holy Spirit can speak to our consciences directly, right, and guide us towards what is good. Satan is not nearly that powerful. He's not some sort of parallel. He's a fallen angel, as we know. But he still can whisper lies into the ears of our conscience. And what I'm saying here is not some sort of wild thing that only the mystics who fast for 40 days in the desert experience. Um, this is actually just ordinary Christian life, to hear the lies from Satan. Uh, I mean, I'd be surprised uh, if any of you at sometimes have not had thoughts like this. I mean, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever thought... I don't know if God can forgive me for that terrible thing that I did those years ago. Or maybe, you know, if if people knew this about me, I could never show my face in church again. Maybe more subtly, maybe we think that God doesn't 
He may love some people, but he doesn't love me. He, he, he tolerates me. Maybe he's able to save other people, but I don't know about myself. I admit, I've had thoughts like these. Does, does any of those sound familiar a little bit? Where, where do you think thoughts like that come from? Satan. Yeah, thanks, Rick. <laughs> I always love answering rhetorical questions when I'm listening to a speaker, so you're always welcome to answer rhetorical questions in here. That's right. Um, yes, we stand guilty, but rather than um, repenting and fleeing to Jesus Christ, we can take these lies and just kind of sit heavily in self-condemnation. And it's against all of these lies that God is speaking to us through his servant Paul in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to actually be wanting to reference several verse numbers, so unusually for what we do here, but if you would have your bulletin kind of turn to the Romans reading, because I want you to see that this is not just my ideas, this is the word of God. Uh, So I'll be referencing some verse numbers as we go. So look first at verse 30. The first uh, installment of this teaching about how strong God is to save us. Those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So the meaning of this dense phrase is that before the foundation of the world, right before anything was created, God had in mind to create you individually and to save you personally. Before any atoms existed, you were in the mind of God that he wanted to save you. Which means that if, as actually I know all of you, as all of you have um, chosen to serve God, that, that was step two of the plan. Step one was when he chose you. He chose you first, and then you chose him. That's how committed he is to us being saved from the things that crush our lives, from sin and death and everything that's connected to those things. So having picked you out for an eternity of joy, the very first sort of action he takes on our lives is he justifies us, right? We're predestined, called and and justified. Meaning, he freely has given you a right standing before God the Father. We, each of us, have been accounted righteous before God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross in dying and rising again. So, you know, Paul will elsewhere use the language of the, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, which means we have all the inheritance that the Son has, all of the love, everything good and righteous so that, that Jesus Christ has in himself, he has shared with us who have been adopted into that same family. Which means the day um, that, that you came to faith in him, fulfilling the promises made in baptism, each of you were accounted to be as holy as Jesus is holy. And, and God does this sort of um, extreme reckoning so that we could know sort of once and for all that we don't have to earn his good pleasure or his good favor. That there's no question. There's nothing that could be earned. He's given us all on the front end. To be justified, as each of us was at the beginning of our Christian life, is to get everything you could ever want from God for free so that he could communicate to us how profoundly invested he is in him being the one that saves us, rather than us trying to save ourselves. Paul highlights the cost of this gift, right, in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. And verses like this take on new resonance as I, you know, we're about to have Jane and having a child. The idea of giving up a child. I mean, obviously not an immature child. The son himself revealed it was his will as a fully mature being of how to describe the God-man. But, you know, he was cooperating with the father's will, but still it was the father's will that he would give up the only son he had so that he could win each of us to himself, to redeem us, body and soul. So I wanted to sort of paint this kind of cumulative picture, the work of salvation planned before the beginning of the world, begun in our own lives when we were justified freely. God then continues in each of our lives by giving us his Holy Spirit to sanctify us until our own lives come to look more like the life of Jesus. We see this kind of running throughout this whole passage that the Spirit is the one helping us and shaping us begins with verse 26, speaking about prayer, but it's true generally for everything in the Christian life. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And the goal of that work we see in verse 29 is to be conformed to the image of his Son. And uh, this conforming process, this isn't something which sort of happens in our brains outside of our regular life. This is working through just all of the things of our daily life. The struggles, the worries, the financial concerns, the temptations to sin, and even, I want to say, um, even the scars from past sins. God is working all of those things together for our spiritual good. He's turning all the bad things into instruments of refinement to produce in us, to conform us to the same character as his one and only son, Jesus. That's the meaning of verse 28. We, I think we sort of, um, we cheapen this verse when we think about it as, oh, you know, things are going to be okay in this stressful situation, which is true because the Lord is the Lord and most things do work out fairly okay. But this verse is speaking so much more deeply than that. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that good is being conformed to the image of his Son. Who wouldn't want to look, have a life more ra- as radiant as Jesus' life? As if um, this one enough to sort of show the kind of Savior that he is, what a great Savior he is, not only does he choose and justify and give us his Holy Spirit, but through all of that, during every second of, your mortal, of our mortal lives, waking and sleeping, not one, but two persons of the Trinity are interceding and advocating for us at all times. <laughs> that just blows my mind. God the Son and God the Spirit are always praying to the Father, asking for mercy and pardon and healing and peace and restoration for our lives. We see it, verse 26, right at the top of the passage. The Spirit himself is interceding for us. And then, as at the head, so at the caboose, in the, at the last verse in this passage, verse 34, we read that Jesus, the same Jesus, you know, we, we so often we talk about Christ's death and resurrection, and there's a danger in thinking that, well, yeah, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said he cared for me. And Paul writes against this, a misunderstanding to say that, no, he did that then, but right now, this very second, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, pleading for each one of us by name. 
pleading his own body and blood that he offered for us that we might be saved and healed and made well. That we'd be saved from the guilt of our past sins, saved from present sins, and ultimately saved on the great day of judgment. So taking this into view, um, could God be rooting for us any more than he already is? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? No, thank you. (laughs) Gosh, no. We see then verse 31 that I began with. It's about our salvation. If God is for us, if Almighty God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Paul actually really drives this home. Verse 33 and 34, he just keeps rephrasing. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. That's you, in case you didn't know. Who is to condemn? He's almost just like, I can almost picture Paul sort of just chuckling, like, who could condemn? Someone who has God on their side. What accusation, whether it comes from someone else, from the world, from the devil himself, or from our own consciences, what accusation could ever stand with God on our side? The accusations just wither and dry up on their own. God is stronger than any accusation and if we turn to him in prayer as our refuge that simple thing nothing can prevent us from being saved that's what Paul's talking about elsewhere in Romans when he says nothing can separate us from the love of God just simply fleeing to God for refuge nothing will stop us being saved in the end that's how great a savior he is and I think about like how many roadblocks I'm, I almost unconsciously and consciously am trying to put in God's way through the day, right? Like, oh yeah, God, I know you t- told me I should do that, but I'll just put that off today. Or, yeah, I hear you prodding my conscience, but I'm just going to do what I want right now. Like, we're constantly trying to sort of block God, but through his in heavenly intercession and his great love for us, he's constantly bringing us back to himself to a simple prayer of repentance and constantly rescuing us and saving us, protecting us. Nothing can separate us from that love. So um, it will always be the case that as Christians we can always say, yeah, like with John Newton, I am a great sinner. That's a fact. But God is a great saviour. And so that's the phrase, if I could leave you with one thing to stick with your minds forever actually, for the rest of your life. To never forget what a great saviour you have. And if you doubt it, return to Romans 8. Anytime you think like, Oh, can God save me? I don't know. Read Romans 8 and be reminded God is a great Savior. Amen.